This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and it is time for Love Letters Live with Janet Galen. Welcome, Janet. Thank you, dear. And I want to introduce my guest today to Love Letters Live, Anita Hollander. And I'm going to, I'm going to go to you pretty much right away because I, I'm just going to say that you are a Broadway star and you have been performing all your life. And may I just go to you and let you say when you started, and we just talked about before we went here, you talked about good genes when I mentioned how gorgeous you are, your cheekbones. (laughs) But I saw something else that I didn't know. And I have to say, I've known your name forever. I have known of you. And it's amazing to me how you can know of somebody and not know almost any details that are so important to who that person is. So genetically, can we start from way back? Your father was a cantor? Yes. Uh, before that, his mother was, um, was an opera singer who oh. uh, later sang with the Cleveland Orchestra Chorus. Okay. Uh, when I, by the time I came along, she was singing with, she was much older and she was singing with the Cleveland Orchestra Chorus under Robert Shaw and Louis Lane. And on my mom's side, my mom's mom was in vaudeville. Oh, wow. And she died six years before I was born. And I swear to you, I, I'm the rebirth of my grandmother who was in vaudeville. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen it. I, I went and looked on YouTube at some of the things you've done, and you definitely have that echo of vaudeville. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, things I came into the world already knowing, you know, and being, people say I was born in a trunk because that expression means, you know, you just have it in your blood. And right. I do. And, uh, and my dad, yes, he was a cantor at the synagogue. And consequently, his four daughters, including me, we tend to sing a lot back at the temple, a lot. I'm, I'm a, I conduct a children's choir. Oh, when I'm not on stage. I'm conducting a children's choir at the village temple. And uh, so we've all, we've all stayed in that realm and we're, we all sing. We sang together as a group, the four of us um, in Cleveland growing up. Uh, oh. Television and yeah, I know. I saw that new Cleveland. Anyway. Um, uh, we just, I'm, so, I'm so touched by all this and I'm just, I'm so delighted. I mean, it's just making me so, you know, when you see something and you know that there's a genetic history, you can tell, we can tell. Yeah, it's an amazing thing and well, I you don't ever take it for granted. You don't take it for granted. No, I don't. Oh, good, good. Because sometimes what you grow up with, you know, I think that's true of most of us, but it's the wallpaper. Yeah, people just do take it for granted. I mean, I will say that growing up, I thought everybody, that singing was easy, that everybody wasn't for anybody to do it. Thus, as a choir director, I tell the kids, I don't care how they sing, that it's that that they should sing. And I have a deaf choir member and a a, um, a developmentally disabled singer in my choir. We had, we had, we have all kinds of kids in our choir because I think everyone should sing rather than whether they are told that they can or they're good at it or whatever. Singing well, you, is- you touched on something that has always been something I have noticed and probably we all have. I think if I notice something, at least half the other world, the world does. But that is people have their throwaway talents. Yeah. That is to say, things that come so easy to them that they don't think of it 
as anything but natural. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've had people say to me, I'm sort of, oh, I don't know how you do that. What? Just do it. I know. When I talk about uh, being born in a trunk, um, this, the quote was said about me um, because, and I know you were probably going to ask about this at some point, but because uh, after my amputation, four weeks later, I, two weeks later, after the amputation, I, I went back to direct the show, to continue directing the show. And four weeks after the amputation, I was back on stage opening the Can show. Can we back up? In the show. Can we back up? I know, I know. It's just that that's the reason the guy said, well, she was born in a trunk. Is because it was, it was something <clears throat> Yeah, okay, but, but you know, you, in, in addition to being blessed with enormous talent, I think my mother would say, no credit coming to you that you're either beautiful or talented because you had nothing to do with that. That's right. What you do with it goes to your credit. And you have done so much. Can we start? You mentioned after the amputation. How old were you? What happened? Well, um, and start with what was your first, what was your, I know I'm going crazy with wanting to know everything in a minute, but what was your first performance that was like a professional performance? Okay, so uh, I was eight, well, yeah, unprofessionally, when I was four, I got up on stage at the Hungarian Benevolent Society that my family was going to a magic show at. The magician said he needed somebody to come up and maybe sing a song while he was setting up. And before my mother knew it, I had left my seat next to her and, and I was on stage and she's looking at me and I'm singing uh, Guys and Dolls. I was that singing, counts. I'll know when my love comes along in Guys and Dolls. The, the audience didn't know what I was singing because I was like, chemistry? What chemistry? I, I was doing the whole scene, the whole scene from the musical. But I was four and I wasn't that, um, uh, I, I tried to say too many words at once. Yeah. I stumbled all over my words so nobody knew what I was. And I had a very low, low voice because I had nose on my throat when I was four. No, I was a mess. Nobody thought I would ever make but you knew what you were doing. I mean, with four sisters, I was the one who was the klutz. I was the one who was the mess. But um, at the age of eight, my mom, she was so wonderful with us. She took us to an audition at um, Music Carnival, a, a tent theater in Cleveland, uh, which did professional equity shows in the summer, because mm -hmm. thus the tent. Um, so it was all professional equity, and they were looking for children for The Sound of Music. And she said, would you like to see what an audition is like? And I'm like, yes. And because uh, I'd been dancing in my living room and just raring to get well, on. You were really self-propelled. My mom knew from that four-year-old appearance that I wanted to do this. And my older sister, Celia, who was really the one who had perfect pitch and really on top of it, smart as a whip. I just looked up to her and said, I'll never be like that. And we were pals. We were very close in age. And so we both went to this audition together. And, uh, and, and then there was this callback. And I figured it was for Celia, for my sister, but it was for me. So I'm like, okay. And all we did was sing the first four notes of Do Re Mi, which I had written on my arm, because it was new. Sound of Music was new at that point. This was the first regional production. So um, I, uh, I went to the callback, and I thought, I'm so plain next to these loud, blasting children, you know, and very cute, and very, but very loud. These kids were like blasty, and I was just singing the song. And um, 
and they kept keeping me and the other kids left and they kept keep and then they lined me up and and I got the understudy to Gradle. Wow. You couldn't believe it. None of us could believe it, except my mom probably could believe it. But they, and she, this little girl who was Gradle, was kind enough to get German measles over one oh, weekend. Oh. One weekend. And she said to me, I'm so glad you get to, to do the oh. show. Because she was happy to have German measles so that I could go on and do the show. And are I did. Still, are you still friends with her? No, I've lost contact with her. Oh. I, look, I look her up on Facebook. Ever since Facebook began, I've been looking for her. I will okay. find her because I, I found one of the other actresses who okay, played Marta. Yes. And then the next year, a year later, it was such a successful performance. And it had all Broadway people in it. And, and I, we were just the local kids. Um, it was so successful, they brought it back the next summer. And they told me if I had grown two inches, I could play Marta. And I did. I moved up to have my own role, Marta. And the girl who I was so close with, who played Marta the first time, she moved up to Brigida. She and I are still in touch after all these years. Oh, and, that, is uh, that was my first professional job. And I was with Judith McCauley and um, Lawrence Brooks. And Wally Harper was conducting the orchestra, who went on to be Barbara Cook's conductor. Oh, she was a musical director for her shows. And I mean, I knew that I was this was like okay my career has started at eight years old i was sure of this and it does seem to me that you know when people want to know how did you get into this field and this work the issue i think for you is you could not have escaped it it, it really did feel like that that the rest of the way because all from then I mean, on what Sorry. You were born in the trunk that they kept locked. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't keep it closed. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. And then I, I just went on to do, I did, it was very interesting in Cleveland. There was so much theater that I could, I could get shows all the time. So outside of school, which I was also doing shows in, but, you know, there was the Cleveland Playhouse and the curtain, which was the curtain pullers, and I got to be in there. And then uh, I did a show at the Cleveland Playhouse with um, the with the boy who played Charlie in the movie of the chocolate, uh, Charlie and Willy Wonka and the Charlotte. Oh yeah, yeah. Peter Ostrom. And I got to do something with him. And then I did Heights Youth Theater and then Chagrin Valley Little Theater and on Clegg Playhouse. And then I got some commercials because they did commercials. In well, how, how did you make the transition from that to New York then? Well, yeah, it was a bit of a trip, but um, I went to Carnegie Mellon for college. Uh -huh. And uh, actually, before I left for college, I was fortunate to be 16 years old playing Martha Jefferson in 1776 at CVLT at Chagrin Valley Little Theater with all these adults who were at least 10, 15, 20 years older than me I, and getting reviews, you know, in Cleveland papers. I mean, so I had a great resume by the time and, and I got an award from the Ohio, OVS, Ohio Valley uh, something about theaters, a theater award for my acting in House of Bernardo Alba, which was done at the Halley Theater in Cleveland. I mean, theater like that isn't done every in every city. And yeah. I got to play an incredible role, which got me an award. And then the next, I had to come back from Carnegie Mellon to get my award and then go back. So I had to get a special dispensation because nobody leaves Carnegie Mellon once they get there. And, uh, and they accept 35 people in their acting program, at least at that time. 
which is usually wheedled down to a smaller number by senior year because they would cut you, they would cut you out if you didn't stay up at a certain standard uh, in your acting training. And that's all I wanted was that, because I had been singing all my life, I'd been a, you know, up until then, I had been a singing waitress, I had sung for money, I had acted for money, I had really been making a career and had a full resume. So then I, oh, I'm sorry, there's sounds in the back room. Um, I can't. I can only hear you. So. This oh, good. Okay. Um, the um, so I go to Carnegie Mellon. My dad passed away right after Yom Kippur in my sophomore year. So I had just gone back to school. I had spoken uh -oh. to him. He was young. He was young. And he died of a of a heart attack. That was 1975, and I was 19. Six months later, I I started to get pain in my leg and in my back. I figured it was because of all the dance classes and all the I mean, the stuff you do at Carnegie Mellon is a rigorous training program that starts at eight in the morning and doesn't end till 11.30 at night. Oh, Everyone sure. there figured it had to do with wearing corsets in the shows and stuff. I had, each teacher had their own theory about what was wrong with me. I went to a chiropractor, that didn't work. Um, went to doctors. Um, and then I, I started going to see doctors, and nine out of ten doctors said, there's nothing wrong with you, lose some weight, you'll feel better, or stuff well, like that. And I'm well, like, well, um, if yeah. I may, if I may, on what did they base that there's nothing wrong with you? Uh, well, in 1977, there were no MRIs, there uh, were no scans, uh, there was just x-ray. And nothing yes. showed up in the x-ray of my back or my leg. Uh -huh. And... Uh, and some just didn't even want to do any tests. They looked at me, you're healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. Literally just looking at me. Yeah. Um, well, I was an actor in training. Of course I looked healthy, but well, you're also, one or the other. But, um, but then- You're uh, also fortunate in how you look and how you present yourself. Well, maybe, yeah, I do present a lot of energy. And I have that threshold for pain that um, uh, if somebody told me it was nothing, that was, a kind of a relief, but yeah. but this was 1976, and I was uh, oh, it was 1976 when I first started going to doctors, and out of it went nine months of going to doctors, nothing wrong, nothing wrong. I lost a lot of weight, and my skin started having a greenish tone to it. That's all I remember is I looked in a mirror and I went. I mean, I know that I have um those. Uh, yellow tones and you know the eastern oh. european sort of whatever oh, that oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but not a green greenish tone. I, there, what sorry that a greenish tone it had a, oh yeah i have an olive complexion but this was turning green this was not oh. black olives <laughs> this okay. was this green. and i i thought maybe i was imagining it and but but i was in pain and i was doing shows i was back at school doing these shows with high heels and corsets and big restoration costumes and big skirts and dancing and and all this stuff and i was in pain all the time so how did who finally detected what was finally wrong? uh Finally, when, when the Cleveland Clinic was just horrible to me, I'm sorry to say, um, they argued over my bed between the neurosurgeons and the, neuro but what, when they realized that my, when they did that little hammer thing, I had no reflexes in my left leg. Oh, so it was a nerve, they could tell it was so nerve. So they knew it wasn't responding, yeah. And 
I was so happy that day. I'm going, yeah, you see, there's nothing there. It's just hanging there. My foot is not working. I was so happy that somebody suddenly noticed. The little hammer never made me so happy. Anyway, um, they still couldn't figure it out. They knew something was wrong, but they couldn't figure it out. And a wonderful, wonderful neurologist, uh, Howard uh, Tucker, was the one who had seen me earlier but didn't know what it was and sent me to the Cleveland Clinic. Now he was saying, there is something wrong. There's a blockage, but we don't know what it is because it's How did they go from that to realizing that it was a cancer of some sort? He sent me to New York in a snowstorm. In the snowstorm of 1977, they had to care. I was already on crutches at this point because um, I couldn't. They had traumatized my leg with all the tests, the back tests and the myelograms and the discograms. And my leg had bent itself and it wouldn't stop. So they, they uh, he sent me literally to the chief surgeon at the Neurological Institute in, in Manhattan. Not the way I wanted to go to New York, but <laughs> they carried me over the snow into the Neurological Institute and the, the chief surgeon there did um, uh, the opposite of an angiogram, an arteriogram. Angiogram goes up to your brain, arteriogram. Uh -huh goes down and they found it and I was happy that they found whatever it was but I didn't know what it was and uh, and it was strange because I thought the, they had a biopsy they gave me a biopsy and I at 21 I didn't know what a biopsy meant um, I thought that was the operation and now I'll be okay and I'll go back home because nobody had told me anything. And after the biopsy, they transferred me. They said, we're transferring you to the oncology ward. In 1977, uh, the word oncology didn't mean anything to most people. And I, most people. That's right. Yeah. And they, they rolled me down and they said surgery on Tuesday. But well, I'd already had the surgery. I had a cast on my leg. So I thought, what surgery? I already had uh -huh. the surgery. I, I get taken to the other building, uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Now I was in the hospital and I was sharing a room with three women who were middle-aged, 50 or over, and I was 21 and I heard, overheard them talking about their mastectomies. Uh -huh. For, I knew about mastectomies because my grandmother had died of breast cancer. So before I was born, the one that looked so much yeah, like me. Yeah. And I wrote in my journal, I think I have cancer. But I'm going to ask somebody. And a guy came to take bloods for this surgery that I didn't know what it was. And I said, excuse me, can you tell me what oncology means? And they were like, you don't know what it means? I go, no, could you tell me? They didn't tell me. So I heard it from the women. I heard it from my roommates who I never saw because they were behind curtains. But they were talking to each other. And I found out I had cancer that way. And, and did, that, did that amputation surgery take part? Uh, that wasn't the amputation. Uh, there was a tumor inside my nerve, and the, the doctor, the surgeon at um, Columbia Presbyterian was known for not amputating. He would save people's limbs. So he saved my limb by taking the motor nerve out of my leg, uh -huh. like from, the, from way up in my thigh down to my ankle, from my ass to my ankle is what I like to say. Remove the nerve. And... Uh, and did chemo and radiation. And I did have to sign documents saying there was no guarantee that I was done with this. And in fact, he left cancer cells in my leg thinking that the chemo and radiation would kill them. And five oh. years later, I had a recurrence. So at, at the age of 26, that's, that's when the amputation had to happen. 
how did you, I know you, you must get asked this a lot, but it is so hard to fathom how you went from that. And I mean, I think we all have heard about, you know, um, repercussions and impacts of having a limb removed. How did you manage to be back on stage in four weeks? I love, everybody loves to ask how, because that's, that's the big question. You know, well, you um, know why the how but, is because most of us would linger a lot longer over a lot less. Well, it's interesting that I was blessed by, I had, there was, there's always a gift in everything that happens to everybody. And the gift for me was the first operation gave me the warning sign. And I went back to Carnegie Mellon six weeks after that surgery because I was 21 and I wasn't going to, I was going to graduate with my class. I didn't care what it took. I had a brace on my leg and I was on chemo and then I was on radiation and this was all, I stayed over the summer uh, to be an assistant teacher for the summer program for high school students at Carnegie Mellon. Just, and you see, I did that because I got extra care and help from my voice teachers by assisting them during the summer. Oh. I got extra voice because after my first operation, I lost my voice. I think it was the trauma. I had oh, I couldn't, sure. no breathing. I had yeah. a tube down my throat and everything, but I couldn't produce a voice. I, and I was a singer and everybody knew I was a singer and I couldn't produce a voice. My breathing was off. So that summer in between junior and senior year while I was on chemo, I, um, I got extra work with my fabulous voice teachers at Carnegie Mellon and also passed on some of my the things I was learning to high school kids who were watching me with a brace on my leg and no hair on my head and going okay let's do this exercise <laughs> you know I mean I could speak it was the singing that I was oh, I understand what you're saying so, so but you this was my warning so that I knew that this could have that I could lose this leg and five years later well, four and a half years later, when the pain was starting to come back, I knew that was possible. So this amputation didn't happen like, one day I had, like my dad dying of a heart attack suddenly with no warning. That, that, I had plenty of warning. And that was the gift because when they told me that I had a recurrence and I was in rehearsal for this show, for Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, that was the show. I was already in rehearsals. Well, and I had the cast and the stage manager and musical director come to my hospital room and I said, okay, listen to me. I, I've lived with paralysis in my left leg ever since the first operation. The doctor says that my leg was nothing different from an artificial leg because you don't feel an artificial leg either. So he says that once I am the PT, physical therapist say, once I have this operation, I can go back to rehearsals and we're going to get this show. We're going to make this show happen. And their response to that was? The musical director was like, Anita, you've never lost your leg. How do oh. you know this is going to work? And the stage manager said to the musical director, excuse me, I know Anita. I've known her a lot longer than you. I when Anita says she's going to do something, she's going to do it. So you just have to get used to it. <laughs> and the cast was like, Okay. No if about it. There was yeah. no if. No. I read someplace that you had said to somebody, "You don't need. I don't need two legs to sing." That's right. And yeah. I told them that on the first rehearsal, I came back. I said, um, "Okay, they took my leg, but they didn't take my brain. 
I know exactly how this show looks in my mind. I'm going to, I'm going to stage this thing and we're just going to, I only have four hours a day to rehearse, so we're not going to take breaks. If you need a break, just take one. But I'm going to stage this thing, because they had been working on music while I was dealing with my amputation and the PT for two weeks. And, and I was like, I'm going to do this, and we just have to all really focus. I had, in the casting, cast two understudies who I put into the show because I didn't feel it was right for them to sit around and wait for something to happen. But I also knew I had a pain in my leg. So it was like, I need to have someone to step in. If I can't do the show, she'll not only have that song I gave her to do anyways, but she'll also have my song. So I had an understudy. So you you went back full force. Yeah, the poor girl never got to do my role. And the musical director said that was really unkind of me. But you see, once I got back to the show and, and opened it, it was the momentum thing. I couldn't take a night off because I knew I might not get back up again. You know what I mean? It's like if I said to myself, hey, you're right. I'm exhausted. You go ahead and do my, do my part. I couldn't do that to myself because anyway, it would have the momentum. If you can call it that, I would say that I have now known you for 25 minutes up close. And the energy that you have, uh, it doesn't seem like you would ever lose momentum for anything that you wanted to do. Well, it's drive. I was born with incredible drive. So you have taken you, As a baby, I screamed for the whole first year of my life and climbed out of my crib and fell and got a concussion. I should still have a bump on the front of my head. My goodness. Because I was so determined. My mother tells me that, I said, how did I jump out of a crib? And she said, well, you piled up, you were one, and you piled up all the stuffed animals, which we learned after you not to put stuffed animals in the crib. But you climbed up on them, just like a, we once had a hamster here. My daughter had a hamster who, who put shavings into the wheel, the exercise wheel. So it would stop the wheel, climbed up on top. And when we walked in one day, was sitting on top of the wheel with the top of the tank right here going, see what I did there? You know, that's what I did. I climbed up, jumped out of the crib, landed on my head. And that only way my parents knew there was something wrong was I wasn't screaming. And they knew something was wrong because otherwise, I would have been screaming all night. That's how I got nodes on my throat by the time I was four. I mean, I was, I was a child who had places to go and people to see. <laughs> That's another reason why I think I'm my grandmother, because she, her life got cut off before oh, she was done. Yes. And I feel like I came back to the world six, I, I was her coming back six years later going, I really don't need this baby stuff. I need to get going. Life is short. Get out of my way. <laughs> and we'll see about that as the years and years go on about coming back. As. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have taken all this, you have taken all this and you, with all that you're doing and you've got a family and you're a mother of a daughter. Yeah. Uh, a daughter, one daughter, one son, what? One daughter who is now uh-huh. 31. She just turned 31. Uh-huh. And okay. she, uh, she's teaching up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, teaching second grade. Talk oh, about a really difficult wonderful. year to yes. start a teaching well, you, job. You've taken all this experience and now you're working with 
people who have a variety of disabilities to what are you teaching? Yeah, I'm I'm an advocate. Spend a couple of minutes on that because then I want to talk about a love letter. Oh yes. Well, um, I, uh, uh, I am the national chair of SAG after performers with disabilities. I read that. And I've been advocating for people with disabilities for, for over 40 years, ever since, oh. ever since I first had the brace on my leg, I was traveling for the American Cancer Society all over the country to, um, to show people that life goes on after cancer and that, uh, nothing has to stop you. And I was young at that time, um, yes. right after I was 21 and I was really young, but I, I started writing songs about it. So the American Cancer Society would send me around. I would speak a little and then I'd sing a little uh -huh. songs from my show, and which wasn't a show yet. It was these songs that I was writing along the way that became a show. Well, that's, uh, that's, been, that's been a whole career in itself. Yeah, exactly. I was called a celebrity against cancer before I was a celebrity. So I was grateful. But they allowed my daughter to go to Disney World when on her third birthday because they wanted me to speak at Disney World and it happened to be her third birthday. So well, her well, life is charmed. She lives a charmed life. But uh You're so, so unstoppable. What? You are so unstoppable. Yeah, that was the kind of thing. And it was a great way to see the country and for my daughter to see the country and my husband to see the country. We, we got to travel so much. And they, they thought it was very important that the survivors, the cancer yeah. survivors and the people, the donors and stuff like that, to see that not only does life go on with your career, but you, have, you can get married. Because I got married after I lost my leg. Sure. Um, cab drivers think that's very weird that any man, you know, is going to marry one-legged person anyway um for some reason cab drivers find that weird but then they go god bless you and all that but but have a daughter as well so so for me to go to all these places i mean it all started earlier before i got married when i got married they said bring your husband along when i had a child they said oh you've got to bring your child along and after a while she started coming out on stage and singing the song mommy is a mermaid which is the oh, song uh, before she was born because it was to for her to think about when people would stare at us walking down the streets and stuff like that or when we go swimming that people are going to stare so the song mommy is a mermaid was meant for her to sing and by the time she was four years old we stuck her up on a piano and she sang it at at the temple right oh my goodness <laughs> so now we went to disney world and she in 500 people in the audience and she's like seven years old or maybe six or seven gets wired up for the mic wants a little makeup a little lipstick sure why not she goes out on stage and she sings mommy is a mermaid for five you, have, you, have, you have a history and it's ongoing because i can see that you're still young and still doing it all do you, uh, and i'm going to ask you this only because i'm basically about love letters do you you must have gotten a lot of letters in your life i'm guessing do you write letters <laughs> Oh, I'm a letter writer. Oh, I would have guessed back. that. Uh huh. I love handwriting. I love scripts. And and from the time I was, my third grade teacher gave me a B in handwriting, and I was like, "What's that about?" And she goes, "Well, it comes so easy to you." Going back to that thing about something that comes easy to you. Yes. Well, it comes easy for her, so she didn't have to put any effort in it. I'm going, okay, so give me an S, a satisfactory for effort, but give me the A for heaven's sake. Oh, of course, of course. Oh. I, just, I just love it. So handwriting I. Is, handwriting is king. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let me ask you something. 
So if you were to write a letter right now, of course, you know, I'm such a busybody that I listen to people and I'm thinking a love letter to that girl who got the German measles. If you ever find her. Oh. I'm, I'm thinking if it, if it were me, I would sit down and I would write that letter right now and I would address it and stamp it just with her name and stick it aside for when you find her. That is a great idea. So much about you is, you know, your life is historically important in terms of theater and medicine and a whole bunch of other ways, I'm thinking. Well, it's funny that you should say I should write a letter to her. I have boxes of letters. Okay. I had a song in the original version of Still Standing. It was called Here I Stand. And because that's the main song of the show. And one of the songs is called Letters from Abroad. Abroad. Letters abroad. Yes. abroad. And it's yeah. a letter, it's, it's a song based on letters I sent home from Copenhagen when I worked in Copenhagen. And I toured Europe and mm. all this stuff. And I would always write these aerograms, you know, the blue things that, that fold out and, and you have to I'm like- I'm so glad them. you have all these. I mean, I'm so glad that you got the letter. You and you well now, of course, we can write letters and make copies of them, which we should do. And you know, I can see that we're like really two of a kind in this. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. I have come to say that I hear people so often say, "Oh, I wish I had a magic wand," and I say, "You've got one." Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're saying these things because in my song about 9/11, it's called um, "The Something Else." It's as a, sung as a New Yorker, being in New York when this thing happened and seeing it off of my terrace. And uh, I write at the very end, um, keep writing letters, stand your ground and let your voice be heard. In the end, our greatest weapon is the word. Oh, and you yes. holding up that pencil is exactly what the end of that song is about. Oh, so well, I, I should send you one of these. Okay, we'll I love it. Later. I don't know what's on on the top there, but I love it. It's the little, it's the little um, crystal that is part of me. I know I'm insane when it comes to pens. I think they're just things of such beauty. Oh, I'm a, I'm all about pens. Oh. So my, my favorite is the um, is the precise. Oh, oh, I love those. Think, you know, I've, I've been coming to New York every year for many years and spending time. And of course, this year I couldn't because of coronavirus. But I'm hoping that someday I'll get to again and that we'll get to get together for a while. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, so, I'm easy to find. <laughs> right or, now. or you can come to San Francisco. I mean, who knows where life is. I was supposed to be performing in San Francisco in well, July at okay, the Fools so Fury Festival. You can, you can come stay with me. Okay, we'll talk later. Okay. Absolutely, because they are rescheduling it. Because of COVID, we couldn't do it. They're rescheduling me for next summer. So you better remember what you just said. <laughs> oh, I and by the way, I never say anything I don't mean. And I have to tell you, you can't come now even because the air in California, even reading about Oh, yeah. It's you, probably can it, you can it with taco chips. It's horrible. I'm, I'm glad you're okay, though. I'm really glad you're okay. Can I say one more thing about letters? Sure. Probably one of the most important letters that I ever got was my friend who was uh, diagnosed with AIDS. And he was in brilliant composer and lyricist. He wrote a musical of Sheila Levine is Dead and Living in New York, a musical out of that book. The, um, uh, it's such a great book. If you knew the 70s, it was very 70s. And he died, he, he, 
he got diagnosed and he asked me, write a list. How did you, and you know the word how, how did you get from there to here? Meaning how did I get from when I had cancer and losing my life to thriving in New York City? How did you do that? He said, make me a list and I will follow it and I will do everything you did to survive. It's really was the toughest thing for me because I couldn't figure out how, you know, and that's how still standing came about because it's okay. 16 tools so, for survival. If people can look you up and they can Google still standing and they can find out a lot more about you. Or I my website, uh, anitahollander.com. Okay. Oh, well, I want, okay. Well, we can save this for later, but I didn't know if you were from the Hollander family that did the fur coats. I was didn't, that oh, we didn't Hollanderize it for, uh, for, some, for some other dame. Well, the funny thing is that's from Guys and Dolls. You would oh, think no. I had something. No, no, every word of it was, yes. So I was touched by the fact that that was the first thing you sang because there's not a word of that play that I don't know by heart. Okay. I'm going to thank you for doing this with me. Oh, and thank hope you. we'll just be in touch again. So uh, many things. I'm so glad that I've met you and both of you ladies. Uh, thank you so yeah. much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, I'm just gonna, we'll talk later. Okay. I'm gonna say goodbye for now. And Love Letters Live, we'll talk to you with somebody soon. Bye. Bye-bye.